Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the main course. I'm your host, Patrick Martins. We're broadcasting out of Roberta's Restaurant. We are very, very excited here at the Heritage Radio Network about the news section of the site, which has really transformed uh, the way people interface with the radio. First and foremost, the news is the best way to hear a lot of the hosts. It's the hosts talking two to three minutes on a subject uh, that they're an expert on. And uh, we are cutting to really important news issues and showing how food is a component of those news issues. So we have a whole fantastic array and army of interns that work with Aaron and Jack and Allison. And we canvass them to compile questions, uh, kind of like training, like in the line of fire. We're like Joe Carroll, the head the owner, the head, the visionary behind three of Brooklyn's most historic and important and, and well-liked restaurants, Feta Sao, uh, St. Anselm, and uh, more of a bar, Sput and Dival. Um, so we're very excited, and they wrote up a bunch of questions. So welcome, and thanks for taking on this kind of rapid-fire news segment. Yeah, man, right on. Thanks for having me. How are you, by the way? Everything good? Business I'm, good? Family good? I'm well, yeah. Summer was great, as always, and... Um, looking forward to the fall. Things are well. Kids are in school and happy, generally. Very nice. And have you made your first billion yet, or is that uh, not, still not quite yet? Post fall, no, no. yeah. That's uh, hopefully by 2015. Because oh yeah, every time I look, <laughs> those places are packed, 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 and they've been around for a while. So it's nice to see good things get old or older, yeah. you know, and not just uh, yeah. be a flash Sp- in the Spine's pan. Spine's 11 years old now. Wow. Yeah. So uh, older than most people's kids and all that, you know, <laughs> right. they were before they were married, you know, <laughs> right. a lot of uh, interactions with those places over the years. In fact, I think I got sick in your bathroom a few times cool. when you first right opened. On. That's how much I drank. <laughs> but um, all right. So our first question, and these are in no particular order, just the way they were asked. Yvette Cabrera. Jack, am I pronouncing that correctly? Avec Cabrera is a writing intern, and she asks Joe, as a male barbecue chef, how do you feel about gender roles of men using the grill and women in the kitchen? You know, I have no specific feeling other than, like, I, I don't see there any, there being any gender roles. In fact, at St. Anselm, which is a grill-driven restaurant, our kitchen is three-quarters female. Um and I don't, I mean, I don't see any difference or problem or issue or uh, I think it's great. And I, I, obviously there's nothing, you know, that one sex brings to cooking or grilling or barbecuing that the other c- couldn't bring to it. Um, it's funny how, and, and I, I don't know why exactly it's, it's happened this way, but it is funny how at least domestically, you know, in households, it, it is split. Cooking is split along the gender line in that women generally run the kitchen and men generally run the grill outside. I have no idea why that's developed that way. Um, 
in my house, it's like my dad doesn't cook a thing yet. He'll grill stuff, and not that, like he's way into grilling. It's just that like if something's got to get grilled, my mom's like, "Hey, grill it." Um, yeah, I have no idea. I really maybe women were inside cooking stuff while the, the men were cooking the proteins on the grill, so it was a double duty issue. Or um, I have no idea. I really I, I don't know why it's developed that way. I really can't. Maybe it's something some weird sexist thing from fifty years ago. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure why. Um, but I don't see there being a, a problem or a difference or it being really relevant. You know, I like that idea about it being a location thing. Uh, women maybe were with the right. kids, and that's where that kitchen was, whereas yeah. the grill was outside. Do you think when you're looking for a grill master, uh, you just happen to expect it to be a guy? Or no, no, I, I really don't. I mean, I, I yeah. don't think twice about it. It just you know, I want somebody who's capable and can execute well and can run a kitchen properly and i don't give a shit well thanks you know. Yvette, for throwing him a real softball there with that first <laughs> one good lord jack who, who did you guys uh hire so let's see eliza lore is a writing a great name. intern yeah eliza lore what are your thoughts on the barbecue sauce wars joe my thoughts on barbecue sauce um and this holds true for fat to sow is um, I like a little bit of sauce on my barbecue sometimes, but generally speaking, I don't like any of my barbecue to come pre-sauced. I don't like to get it from a barbecue place with a sauce all over it already. Um, my feeling is that it, when you overuse anything, and that could be true with any other spices or herbs in, in cooking, it doesn't have to be sauce. Uh, when you overuse it, you're, you're hiding the, the flavor of what it is you're, you're trying to cook in the dish. And I think... Most importantly, with the meat that we're using at Feta being all heritage breed animals and, and naturally raised animals, um, there's so much flavor in that meat. And we do it. We do a dry rub that is, is a seasoning, essentially. So I think between the flavor of, that's inherent to the meat and, and the dry rub seasoning, sauce is really, for the most part, unnecessary. A little bit for some heat uh, in, in spice or a little bit for a little sweetness to balance or perhaps vinegar to break up the the richness of the fat. I don't have a problem with that. But to overly use sauce and to and I think unfortunately there's a part of this country and some of those people are in really barbecue centric locations and most aren't though that really believe barbecue is sauce. I mean without barbecue sauce there is no barbecue. But uh I I disagree. Um do you well let's see that that, that reminds me Caitlin Pierce, an outreach coordinator for the Heritage Radio Network, asks, Will your barbecue, Joe, ever really be considered legit from Southern barbecuers since you're from New Jersey and cooking in Brooklyn? Probably not. Just for that? Probably. I mean, probably not. But, you know, that's got to be put in context because, you know, people from Eastern Carolinas don't necessarily think people from Western North Carolina are legit either. You know what I mean? So it's... There's always this infighting in barbecue. It's always existed. I actually think there's less of it now than probably ever before because people have experienced really good barbecue outside of the, you know, the handful of meccas for barbecue in the country. Um, I, it'd be nice to, if to be considered legit. I, look, I, nothing makes me happier and prouder to meet people from Texas or North Carolina or Memphis who grew up eating barbecue and, and eat at feta and love it and think it's, you know, as good or better than anything they grew up eating. Um, 
but ultimately, no. It, it's it, it, look at bottom line. It's a protectionist thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you're from Texas or you're from Memphis, you are protecting your own thing. So to legitimize some other barbecue area that even is legitimate to begin with uh, is tough. Let alone to legitimize somebody from Jersey and New York City from the north. From the north, man. From the north. Eliza I'm okay Lohr. with that, by the way. I don't, I don't You're really, what? I'm okay with it, by the way, though. Yeah. Well, we won the war, so we're fine <laughs> with it. <laughs> right. Eliza Lore, a writing intern for the Heritage Radio Network, asks, do you use Heinz ketchup? What do you think of Heinz? And name your top three sauces that you have in your refrigerator of all time, not homemade ones, like big right, right. company ones. Um, we do use Heinz. Um at feta for the our sweet barbecue sauce as a base um at san anselm we we don't use heinz for uh the hamburger um mostly because it makes it we use a everything there is kind of a little more farm driven it's a little more handmade and um but look the reality of it is uh and many people before me have said this it's hard to beat heinz man it really is i mean you could make very good tasting ketchup yourself or somebody else can can do it um for you but it's hard to replicate heinz there's there's so many little factors involved with what makes heinz kind of great um i know early on at uh whole foods they were very serious about not carrying any processed foods and all stuff but the one thing they carried Mm -hmm. was heinz ketchup because how do you not almost you know um yeah, it, it's it, there's something about it. It's one of the few foods that's highly processed that uh, is kind of good. And, and, well, at least it is exactly what you want and expect. Now, part of that might be every American grew up eating it. So you're, it's so ingrained in – it's almost part of our DNA to know and like that specific flavor of ketchup uh, that maybe it's hard to go back on that. Mm-hmm. Um and as far as favorite sauce, I'm a huge fan of HP sauce. Um, HP sauce, which is an English, English, yeah, which I think is made by Heinz. For I don't know, maybe not. There's um, three or four flavors of that sauce. There's the regular one, then there's like a fruity one. Yeah, I'm a, the OG fan, the original. Okay. Um, yeah, there's something great about. Uh, there's a bit of sweetness to it, but and and umami even to it. But there's a fair amount of vinegar, a fair amount of acidity to it, and that, I think that. Um, is really important in almost any sauce. It needs that acidity to kind of lift everything and, and kind of, you know, drive the point of the flavor home. Um, I like mustard a lot, uh, and I'm not terribly particular about what kind of mustard. I like all kinds of mustard. Grain mustard? Dijon. Yeah, everything. I, you know, the funny thing is, um, though I like grain mustard, I, I tend to not be a huge fan of really almost pure grain mustard where it's nothing but mustard seeds loosely held together um because at that point it's not really it's like it's hard to get it to coat anything and um it's true you know it's hard to spread it on bread and you wind up using half the jar to cover a piece of bread um so not that there's any flavor issue with it and i like the little crunch and pop from the seeds but it's not the most practical i think um and uh i don't know i'm probably forgetting a lot of little sauces i I like but uh, you know I, I like hot sauce too, and I like hot sauces that are, you know, the right level of heat. Um, something that lets you know that it's there, but nothing that gets in the way of flavor and like destroying, you know, destroying your palate. Basically, um, big fan of Frank's Red Hot. 
I think it's like the perfect level of heat, you know. Um, and again, it's really vinegar driven too. I like uh, hoisin a lot. Sure. I mean, I like the original sriracha, the real one, right. not the one made in California. Right. Dijon, I always have. Heinz, horseradish, pure horseradish. Yeah, I love horseradish. Sauces are an interesting, uh, much maligned. You know, I agree with you on Heinz. I think it is. You know, in fact, uh, you know, I, I'll ask you next time. Has Saint Anselm broken and start gone back to Heinz? We but, use so little ketchup there that um, that it's not that big of a deal. You know, if we were using probably yeah. volume of ketchup, we would use Heinz. So here we jump to. Uh oh. Jack, it looks like there's an angry vegetarian in the writing uh-huh. staff. Oh, boy. Amrita Gupta asks, do vegetarian vegans have feta sow just eat a lot of sides? Well, like, so here's the thing about that is if you are a vegetarian or, and especially vegan, why would you want to be at feta sow in the first place? Now, all right, I grant that sometime maybe you're out. You're one of like six or eight people going out and everyone wants to go there and you kind of suck it up and go along. And in that case, I, I'm sorry. I feel bad for you. Um, our sides there, believe it or not, are all, except for the beans, our sides are vegan. I'm pretty, I'm fairly certain in that there's no butter. We use olive oil and everything. And um, there's no other animal fat, no eggs, nothing like that. And any of our, any of our, like our potato salad um, is a German style potato salad. So there's no mayonnaise. Um, the broccoli salad is very simply, you know, olive oil, lemon juice, garlic, and chili peppers. Um, so, and, you know, sauerkraut and pickles, those things are all vegan, oddly enough. Not by design, just by the way it happened to be. Um, but yeah, you know, why, why go to a barbecue place if you don't eat meat? Um, and, and that holds true with San Anselm, too. Why go to a place that focuses on, you know, steaks and chops and seafood and things like that? Now, again, we, we have a fair amount of vegetables at St. Anselm and, uh, you know, a portion of those are vegan too, but not by design either. Um, but not really the places, you know, look, there's plenty of places in New York city to go to, to, to eat predominantly. In fact, I'm just weeks away from opening a place with, uh, with two partners, uh, chefs that is predominantly a vegetable driven menu. Um, though there will be a little tiny bit of protein on, on the menu. It's predominantly vegetables. Um, so there's plenty of places in New York city's probably the easiest place in the country or at least one of the top three places in the country to be vegetarian and vegan because you have so many options um you know tougher if you're in peoria illinois or you know somewhere in the middle of the country would you recommend that people don't go to uh, restaurants that bill themselves as vegetarian and seek out vegetarian uh, options at the best restaurants that specialize partly in it for the most part i think that's true I, i think that the issue i have not philosophically, but the issue I have with eating a lot of vegetarian and vegan food is that there seems to be a a need to want to replicate meat all the time. I love vegetables and nuts and grains and non-meat things, um, but I love meat too, and I don't want to necessarily eat fake, fake meat because um, most fake meat, A, doesn't taste like meat at all, even though a lot of vegetarians think it might. Um, and also, like, why not embrace the point of being vegetarian or vegan and eat vegetables and grains and nuts and berries and things like that and stay like, why eat fake meat? What's the point? Just eat meat. If you want if you want that flavor and texture so badly. Um, so I, yeah, I don't get that. And I, I've never really had any kind of fake meat meals that were good and well executed and really tasty. I've had plenty of vegetable dishes that were dynamite. 
Um, so I, I think that's really what it comes down to. And, and usually if you're going to a more serious restaurant, they're not trying to fake meat. They're just trying to make great vegetables. Well, this uh, confirms that uh, Amit, Amritra Gupta is a vegetarian because now after asking the hardcore aggressive vegetarian question, she comes back with the, the meatiest of all the questions. Has anyone asked for grilled sweetbreads, ears... Uh, uh, very unusual, awful cuts, and are there any limitations to meats that cannot be barbecued using the equipment of a big barbecue restaurant like yours? We've done a ton of offal at over the years at Fetisau. Um We've done calves' brains, and um, you know we do tongue quite frequently. I don't know if tongue is necessarily considered offal, but uh, we've even done um, heart. Though a lot of offal, um, either texturally or because of its fat content or, you know, there's no real connective tissue in most of all, isn't best suited for the technique of barbecue for, for cooking. Um, generally, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of offal. The only offal I really don't like are kidneys. Um, I've, I've yet to have kidneys that didn't have a bit of urine flavor to them. Um, uh, maybe not the biggest fan of tripe either, though I have had some tripe that's been, been pretty good. But um, I love brains. I love heart. I uh, love liver and in, in it's all its form um so yeah i mean we've we've definitely done some stuff but like i said barbecue isn't necessarily the best technique for cooking it i'm very interested every time i go to paris all the good bistros have kidney as a dish it's uh, surprising if you go to balthazar there's definitely not a regular menu item for no, a kidney no or you know big places like that most americans still are a little squeamish even even in this day of you know the foodie culture most foodies or you know self-proclaimed foodies aren't really big fans of offal. Did you say squeamish or peenish? Squeamish. Squeamish. What an ass. So Allison Hamlin is the deputy director of the Heritage Radio Network, and she asks, as long as a longtime pioneer of the Brooklyn restaurant and bar scene, but with an outpost in the works at the Bowery. What do you think of the hype about BK, Brooklyn, eclipsing Manhattan as the dining epicenter of New York? Well, first of all, um, thanks to Eater, everyone seems to think we're opening a place in the ba- on the Bowery. Um, and though we have been trying to do so, uh, it, it's, not, it's far from a definite thing because there's a lot of issues um, that, that involve the, the space, and, and it could very well not happen. Um, but I, it's, a year ago, Eater was at the community board hearing for the liquor license and uh, printed that we were opening this place. So now, you know, a handful of times a week, I, I get asked, how's the project going on the Bowery? That's not. It's not going at the moment at all. Um, look, I, I don't know that Brooklyn will eclipse Manhattan for fine dining, but that's not what Brooklyn was the dining scene in Brooklyn was based on and what it's all about. In fact, just the opposite. Well, let me, let me correct that. Not, not the opposite of fine dining, but, um, but certainly not the same fine dining. What has been so important in Brooklyn in the dining scene and really what has put Brooklyn on the map and what's been emulated across the globe now is this idea of fine dining in a very casual setting, in a very unpretentious setting. Um, 
you know, and, and being able to push the envelope a bit with menu and service and things like that because you're not in Manhattan, because you're not paying $70,000 a month in rent rent um you're afforded an opportunity to to experiment a little more and do things um a little more off the beaten path and that really has i think defined what brooklyn dining is about and in that in that sense i think it has long surpassed where manhattan is um i think as far as new interesting restaurants brooklyn has really surpassed that um i'm not sure if the Labernadens and Daniels and per se's of the city will ever open up in Brooklyn um, or at least be the same thing. I mean, we have Brooklyn fair and we have Blanca right here that are certainly doing the same, same level of food. Um, I just don't know that the entire experience will be ever duplicated in Brooklyn because it's not called for. Um, it, it sort of isn't what Brooklyn is about. And, and you know, and, but who knows, you know, in 10, 15 years, Brooklyn might look very, very different than it does now. Very interesting. Well, also from Allison Hamlin, and uh, you've been very nice to answer these kind of rapid fire questions from the and, you know, m- much of the new team, many sure. of the new team uh, people. She asks Allison Hamlin, the deputy director of Heritage Radio Network. Sputin Dival open. Spiten. Spiten Dival. Spiten Dival. So the, I mean, the U and the Y is pronounced like an I. partially on purpose. I mean, I literally You've been just, saying that for 11 years. No, right? yeah, exactly. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm going with it. I, I abbreviate the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, the Buicks, even though there's no we sign right. in it. And I don't know. It, uh, but, you know, you make your, it's like when you sure. remember a song. Right. With the wrong lyrics. Spiten Dival. Spiten Dival. Opened in 2003. What changes have you seen in the beer scene in the last decade? Oh, my God. So many. I mean, I've been involved in some way in the in the, the beer world since the very late 80s, early 90s. Um, you know, originally just as a home brewer and a fan of beer. And then really, until I opened Spine Dival, I wasn't involved in it professionally. Um, and there was there were a lot of changes throughout the 90s that came. But in the last decade and really the last maybe seven or so years, um, God, the, the beer world has changed so much. Um, I mean, generally for the better, I, I, I worry a little bit about the volume of beer that's being produced now and, and how long it can sustain the volume of craft beer. I, I have trouble keeping, I mean, this is what I do for a living and I have trouble keeping up with it. Um, not just the amount of new breweries opening up at, at such a rapid pace, but the amount of new beers each brewery is producing you know it used to be uh, most breweries made four to seven beers a year and now it's now that's like four to seven beers a month new beers but are these good beers i i know the well, brewing culture is very friendly to each other and no, they are, are no one ever bashes I, beer I but well, can you true. be They're, producing so many and just go from two beers to 30 and they all be great well i mean you know all be great? Probably not. It's a but, question you know, can, asked can, of other right. Industries. Can you can you bat a thousand all the time? Probably no. Doubtful. That said, there's been so much has happened in brewing and craft beer that all of the current newer you know the, the the new wave of all these brewers are really they're you know standing on the shoulders of giants essentially. They they are so much further ahead in their learning and their abilities and in, in their execution of, of brewing than anybody who came before them. 
So very quickly, they're able to produce really great stuff because they have, you know, a, a history now of, of craft brewing in this country and globally. So I think generally speaking, beer has never been better. There's no question. Uh, it's it's rare for me today to drink a beer that just outright sucks, uh, a craft beer. Um, I might have some that's okay, kind of boring, not terribly interesting, you know, decent. But rarely will I ever drink a craft beer that I think is bad, really poorly done. Not to say it doesn't happen. It, it does. It's but just wines, you infrequent. taste bad wines all the time. Yeah, true. Um, it's true. But I think, this, I think that said... It still holds true with wine as well. There are still more wines being produced today of a high caliber than ever before. The the majority of wine being produced uh, around the world today is pretty damn good. It might not be amazing, but it doesn't suck for the most part. Um, even really cheap wine has gotten much, much better. Um, so, you know, quality hasn't seemed to, to have been affected. Now, in the 90s, I don't think that was true. In the 90s, there were a lot of people getting into this without this history and, and experience to look back on and build upon. They were kind of creating it as they went along. And there were a lot of bad breweries and bad beers, and they've all, for the most part, since gone under as well. And you know, I'm sure there'll be a, a bit of culling that takes place in the next handful of years with some of these breweries because you know, New York City has gone from two or three breweries to 30-something, whatever it is now. Um, I, don't, I don't know the exact number, but it's a fair amount. You know, so quickly, can everyone be supported? You know, new breweries come into the market all the time, and I'll meet with a lot of these these brewers and brewery owners. They want my feedback as a uh, a buyer and and you know bar and restaurant owner in, in the market. And you know, I, I tell them all now, don't bother, don't come into this market with your flagship IPA or pale ale or wheat beer, thinking you're going to kick ass in this market. It's not going to happen. Those days are gone. That window's shut. Um, you walk into your average bodega now, there's 25 IPAs. Uh, so to come in new to the market, unless you're local and really can, can drive a kind of grassroots local uh, effort, mm -hmm. you're going to have a very difficult time. So um, you know, I'll urge a lot of these guys, don't, don't put your effort into your, your flagship brands from your home market. Come here with some oddball stuff. Come here with something else that that people will take notice of. Otherwise, it's going to get lost. Like a pumpkin beer, <laughs> perhaps. Although now there's you know hundreds of pumpkin beers. Jack, do you want to ask your question about pumpkin beers? How much I hate them. <laughs> no, you had a question. Yeah, uh, I don't know if he has headphones on. But, oh yeah, uh, put your I'm headphones on there. All right. Talking into the mic here. Are mic. pumpkin beers even a real thing? Yeah, they're realer than most people think. Um, well, aren't they made with like spices and? and well, yeah. So th there's th there's sort of two answers to your question. One is pumpkin beers are are an historic beer. The second part of that question is the pumpkin beers that we drink today have nothing to do with those historic beers. <laughs> um, pumpkin beer, and not just pumpkins, gourds and vegetables in general were used by and large, to make beer in colonial America because there was very little grain grown here that was usable, bar barley in particular, to, to make beer with. Um, and until that changed, until people were planting more barley, plus it wasn't necessarily the best environment 
and, and weather for bar, a lot of barley to be produced, especially down south. So they used a lot of vegetables of, of different sorts as fermentable sugars. And, and um, pumpkins and squash in general have a fair amount of sugar in them. And uh, they actually produce a decent beer. It's certainly not the same as you would get from, from barley. But um, it's a historic fact that this was this was done. So there there's this sort of basis of reality. And then what's happened is this has morphed into pumpkin pie beer. Um, everyone, uh, you know, thinks of pumpkin and they immediately think of pumpkin spices as part of that flavor profile of pumpkin. Really, you know, pumpkin on its own tastes nothing like cinnamon and nutmeg. Um, but when people think of pumpkin, they think of pumpkin pie and they think of those spices. Um, and it's you see it at Starbucks in there, you know, fall pumpkin coffee or whatever, whatever it might be. Everyone's emulating this cinnamon nutmeg thing. Um, again, uh, whether it's because people are realize that's kind of BS or because people are just trying to set themselves apart, there are more breweries now producing unspiced pumpkin beers, uh, which are kind of cool. And, not, and they don't taste like pumpkin pie. In fact, in many cases, you don't necessarily even know there's pumpkin in them. Um, but yeah, I get it. There's, there, I'm not a big fan of that either. I'm not a big fan of heavily spiced beers in general. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, there's something, there are people who love it, absolutely love it. And like, can't wait till the fall till these pumpkin beers get released. But you know, it's funny with all these seasonal beers and pumpkin beer in particular, cause really in my mind, pumpkin beer is Oktoberfest and pumpkin beer. You got about a month window to really sell mm-hmm. this stuff and then it gets weird and it seems out of place. Um, and these, these are things that I, as a bar owner, absolutely will not put on. I won't put Oktoberfest beers on until it's October. I'm not going to put them on in August. Yet now, because everyone's vying for the same shelf space and you know production levels have to get sandwiched in because you're making 45 beers a year, uh-huh. um, Oktoberfest beer, pumpkin beer, gets released in late July, early August. It's a joke. It's like uh, yeah, celebrating too early. That's why uh, for the meat world, Goat-tober, Turk-vember, Duck-sember, can't mess around with that. It's in the it's name right. of the it's month. It's in the month. You can't, right. Um, well, I would like to thank Joe Carroll for answering questions from Yvette Cabrera, Eliza Lore, Caitlin Pierce, Amritcha Gupta. I think I pronounced her first name She's three different times each time. Allison Hamlin, Jack Inslee. Joe Carroll is the owner of some institutional restaurants, Fetisau, Spite and Dival, and St. Anselm. Thanks, Joe. My pleasure. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.